0: Hi, welcome to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute and a fellow with the International Leadership Association. This podcast is part of a series hosted in conjunction with the International Leadership Association as part of their 2020 Global Leadership Conference, focusing on leading at the edge. At the Innovative Leadership Institute, we help leaders elevate the quality of their leadership and co-create the thriving future they seek. We assist them in navigating the disruptive trends they're facing, developing strategies to elevate themselves and their organizations to continually meet the challenges they face. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the content. Today, we're going to talk about disruption in America's favorite pastime leadership insights from a Major League Baseball president and CEO. So, our guest today, I am delighted to share with you, is Mark Shapiro. Over a career that spans 29 seasons, Mark is one of the rare executives in Major League Baseball that has had the opportunity to lead and impact baseball business, and lead operations. Widely considered one of the top executives, he was appointed as president and CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays in November 2015, following 24 seasons with the Cleveland Indians organization. Mark's going to talk to us about challenges facing Major League Baseball, the solutions implemented so far so that the game can go on, and finally, the leadership insights learned. And I'm really curious to understand how sport leadership and business leadership intersect. And Mark has a brilliant history that he can help us understand many of the principles that we look to sport as a metaphor for business. So Mark, first of all, welcome and thank you for spending time with us today.
1: Thanks, Mark, It's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to the opportunity to, to uh, learn with you and talk with you.
0: Thank you. So you have an incredibly successful career, including being executive of the year named by Sporting News. Can you give us a little bit more about your background and some of the honors you've earned, which are incredibly numerous?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think my background is very much a liberal arts history major at Princeton, graduated with no definitive understanding of what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, in the search for, you know, that most young people at that stage go that don't have a, a calling that says this is what they're going to do. Look for that alignment of passion and kind of business interest. In my case, I think my learning from that has been that aligning yourself with people who share your values, looking for leaders who build cultures that you feel align with your values. So most importantly, starting with doing the hard work to clarify your own personal values, you know, op- actually opens the door to so many other vocations and fields, and it doesn't have to be the field that derives the fulfillment and happiness. That's kind of the learning that I've taken away over time and what I think about as in building organizations and building cultures. But along the way, part of building some very successful organizations, Cleveland, which is still thriving today in Toronto, I think we've, we've really energized and rebuilt a foundation for a championship future and a sustainable one. The most important piece of that, you know, the honors piece and the recognition are really more, I think, a reflection of the opportunity I received when I started with the Indians in 1991-92, which is, you know, identify people that you think elevate your work. You know, the day they come in, empower those people with an incredible amount of belief and support, and ensure that they align with your values, and then build cultures that have the greatest scalable competitive advantage, which is a learning culture, which are focused on perpetual improvement, obsessive focus, you know, with the sense of urgency on getting better every day, incrementally, and empowering that to happen at every single level of the organization with every person contributing. And, you know, it really all starts with identifying talent and then acquiring talent, whether it's players, you know, with drafting, trading, signing, or whether it's executives with hiring. You know, every single aspect of what you do, in my mind, in building championship organizations or elite organizations starts with those things. And I think after that, a lot takes care of itself, you know, once you've done that.
0: So let's go to values. It sounds like that is an early foundation of everything you've done. And in our leadership development programs, that's the first thing we have people identify, vision and values. And it seems like it's just an exercise where you check stuff off. But if this is grounding characteristic upon which you base your decisions, it's not just a check sheet exercise, it's core to who you are and what propels you through a successful career.
1: Yeah. Couple a couple kind of overarching thoughts on values. You know, number one, as I think about them organizationally, they're what links the different functions of an organization. So obviously everybody tries to avoid the silos, everybody tries to avoid that even if there's excellence work being done, that it's not being done isolation if there's connectivity between the people doing the work. So from a baseball operations standpoint, we identify talent, we acquire talent, we develop talent, and then we deploy talent, right? Like build a team. Those are the things Mm -hmm. that go into it. Those things happen geographically distant from each other. They happen functionally different from each other what links those things are the values. We're looking for the same values and attributes and characteristics and traits in the players that we develop, how we acquire them. It's important that we factor that into the framework that we use, you know, to make decisions on how we acquire those players. Um, And in a world where results are so hyper-focused on and randomness can impact short-term results, If you don't have that compass, and that's kind of what I would say each of us need pulling back from organizationally to personally, values when they're clearly defined either for us individually or for an organization collectively serve as that compass. That where do you go, not necessarily when things are good, but where do you go when you're struggling? How do you get back on course? How do you ensure Mm -hmm. that, you know, you have the strength to persevere and move forward? So for me personally, it's not an easy process to go through to kind of work hard to identify what your values are because you're working to kind of separate out all the great influences of your life, your family, your institutions, you went to school or the you know, people around you, the community you're a part of. And you're looking to find those inherent things that make you you an individual and then celebrate those things. And those are kind of the things that and I this is what I, I tend to ask people when you're happy, fulfilled, at peace and content. Who are you with and what are you doing? pretty simple. Like if you're happy, fulfilled, you know, think about those things. If you start to kind of chart those things out and build those things, you'll start to realize, okay, these are the things that are important to me. Those things often start are are the makings of, of what your values are.
0: Are you willing to share with our listeners a few of yours? And I don't, I'm not asking for overly personal information, but you've been incredibly successful And what I think I hear you saying is your values have contributed significantly to that personal success. And I'm guessing, especially as a pro athlete, you've been faced with opportunities to make some decisions that some of us are never faced with. And the fact that you are where you are leads me to assume that you've made mostly good decisions
1: mostly good decisions and when i haven't made good decisions i've been sure i've i've been certain to learn from them you know and so use them as as lessons rather than view them as mistakes the things that are critical to me are to be immersed and surrounded by people who are humble open and learning that's the absolute cornerstone for me there are many other things as well but that humility leads to openness open mindedness again i think i always look at like you'll hear me talk a lot about scaling How do you scale that competitive advantage? Open-mindedness in an organization will lead to all the words you hear people say, collaboration, you know, that's what leads to collaboration. If you're Mm open-minded, I think the things I focus on are, you know, humility, humbleness leads to an open-mindedness. Open-mindedness leads to learning. And when when you take that and apply that organizationally, and bring a bunch of people together who share that humility and open-mindedness, then all of a sudden the new idea, the great idea, the thing that could propel you forward, the thing that can separate great from good can come from anywhere. As opposed to when you're in a more traditional hierarchical culture where it has to be someone with a certain title and a certain office with a certain superficial set of experiences, you're closed-minded, then you're only limiting to where those things can come from. And the learning is is limited as well. So what I've found is when I'm most fulfilled, when I'm most energized, when I'm happiest, is when I'm learning, when I'm focused on getting better. Uh, When people around me are raising my standards and expectations because of the amount of energy, the amount of ideas, the desire they have to grow, develop, improve on a daily basis, And I think that that only works if someone's not just looking for me to make every decision to lead Mm -hmm. the way. But if we collectively lead, if we collectively take accountability and responsibility and ownership. So when I think about building organizations, you know, those are the values, you know, that non-hierarchical, that really collective ownership and accountability. There are a few other things that we'll get into, you know, that have to do directly Mm -hmm. with kind of handling the challenges we're facing now. That are also values that are important to me, but those are the things I think that uh, really strike at the core. I mean, certainly the grit, determination, and perseverance piece is probably the next most important thing that I look for in people we hire and players we we go to sign. Uh, you know that that I think obviously a huge amount of focus now, organizationally, societally, educationally on those attributes, but. As I read the, the modern research, it's one of those head nod moments for me that like, yeah, every great decision I've made on a higher, you know, like I always wondered when I think about myself, like nothing really stood out, you know, in my high school career or college career where someone would have said, this guy's going to be a star in what he does. But when I think about like toughness, perseverance, determination, those were my star attributes. So I tend to gravitate towards those people.
0: Let's talk then, and I don't want to focus the entire interview on on the pandemic, but it sounds like another word that one could use to talk about the characteristics are you've created an organization that's resilient, that doesn't rely on any individual person or any specific process, that that the humble open and learning means when stuff comes at us, we shift and we shift smartly. And then the gritness, grit, tenacity, perseverance says- of course it's not gonna be right all the time and it's not gonna be easy. Yeah, And you, you get your butt out of bed in the morning and you put one foot in front of the other and some days it feels terrible and yeah. some days it is terrible. But and... you're still gonna get out of bed and get up <laughs> <it over> <laughs> Yeah. And so how during COVID did the challenges that faced you, how as a leadership team and, and as a full organization, were you impacted and maybe impacted differently because of the values you set as an individual and as an organization? It's
1: incredible to consider that, to think about that, especially to still be in the middle of being, you know, to still be immersed in that now, knowing that I'm still, you know, not in an office, not day-to-day, not sitting in rooms with people collectively tackling problems. But when I think of the obvious things, the magnitude of uncertainty, the day-to-day overwhelming feeling of just not knowing, not only not knowing what our challenges are going to be day-to-day, not knowing with any finite understanding how long they'll last, how we're going to attack them. It's been a reminder of kind of two things that I think are important from a leadership perspective, and one is prioritization. You know, I kind of view that. I, I have three approach thinking about the baselines of leadership awareness communication and prioritization prioritization is the one i don't find people talk about very often everyone talks about awareness and communication but prioritization like you've got to you only have so much time is our is our most limited resource and the one we have no control over so the ability to from a critical reasoning understand understanding kind of what do i have to do that's most important today i think that dealing in the world of COVID, you know, and how disruptive that's been has caused me and us to reassess on a daily basis what's most important. And often what's most important is communicating with intent. And having to do that can never happen casually anymore. You know, it all has mm-hmm. to happen with, with a purpose and with intent. And so that we cannot take for granted any interactions. We have to really be so purposeful in all our interactions and and so thoughtful about it. And how do you engage people and help people feel connected when, you know, a large portion of the organization is not attached to work on a daily basis, you know, does Mm -hmm. does not have the same clear attachment anymore. So those have been a a lot of the things that I think are so important. Um, And then maybe just reducing that overwhelming nature you know not eating the whole pizza you know at Mm -hmm. one time but trying to try to make it more digestible and for me the words I use for that are okay we're going to wake up in a sea and with a bevy of news hitting me in the face that I can't control right like when's the vaccine going to come what therapeutics exist you know how how is each local and federal government going to handle you know, what we're dealing with. When's the border going to open up, by the way? You know, when can we play in Toronto? Like, I can't control when the border opens up. I have the games in Toronto instead of Buffalo, New York, that being our home stadium. There are hundreds of things I can control. Some of those are just my self-care, right? Like, what, how much sleep am I getting? Am I still exercising? What am I eating? Some of those are the relationships in my life, the most important ones, the ones I derive, you know, my, my lifeblood from, my children, you know, more than anyone. And I think you know reducing the things that you can control every day, and thinking about some of those things in smaller bite-sized slices rather than you know the entirety mm-hmm. of it starts to make you feel like okay there. And, and I as I, I always think about that with players too, like control the controllable. Don't get caught up in decisions being made about you. Get caught or you know an umpire's call or the weather or you know the field you're playing on. Think about the thousands of decisions every day that you can control. The way you go about your business, how you treat people, you know, all the millions of things you can control. So you know controlling the controllable prioritization, you know, those are kind of two things that as we think about leadership, that we as leaders in the organization are trying to get those messages across, you know, to the broader organization, not to get overwhelmed by the vastness of the challenges that we face. Let's pull back and attack the smaller ones that we can actually control. It's defeating if you start thinking about all the things you can't control.
0: A lot of the reading and the conversations I'm having now are about that isolation, personal resilience, depression. And you've pointed to actually for me, I'm eating better than I've ever eaten. I'm working out more than I've ever worked out because I'm not running from hotel to airplane to conference room. Yeah. I never thought that spinach smoothies would be a foundation <laughs> of my dietary regime, but every day the spinach and berry smooth, you know, it's about how do I feel healthy?
1: And you're taking control. You're taking control of things you can control, you know, so- Right. In a world where COVID didn't exist, you know, you you couldn't control the flights, right? You couldn't control the travel. You couldn't control the pace at which you were moving, you know, but you did control the, your health. You did control the way, you know, the decisions you were making on a business level. You weren't dealing with mm-hmm. like the magnitude of being stuck and working from home, not being able to go to a restaurant, not being able to do it. You controlled other things. and And now I think you're being forced to kind of, okay, I can't control any of those things. I can't travel the way I used to travel. I can't, you know, entertain the way I used to entertain, I can't socialize, I can't do work the way I used to do work, but I can control these, these things that lead to other areas of mental health and well-being. And, you know, you're kind of shifting to those things. And I think whether it's attacking problems, you know, which is finding smaller problems that we actually can make progress on. And some of those challenges are just, okay, how are we going to communicate, you know, in this world? How are we going to connect? How are we going to make people feel tied to what we're doing. How are we going to connect to our fans? You know, when we don't have, when they can't come in the stadium and watch us play, there are things that we can make progress on and have direct actions on organizationally. So we're focused on those organizations. And then individually it's the things you talked about. It's personal well-being and health and controlling the things we can control on a daily basis in our lives. Because if not, we're going to be, we're going to be overwhelmed by that way. Yeah. It's going to come crashing down on us of just of things we can't control every day.
0: Well, and you hit on one and the language, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to repeat exactly back, but that we are much more deliberate and mindful in our communication that yeah. in the in the past, and it's as an executive coach, periodically, I'm called in to help people fix things they have said that sounded different in their heads than they did to the recipient when it came out of their mouths. Um, <laughs> Not necessarily, or
1: or help them get awareness. Maybe that's (laughs) well. uh, Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. If it's coming out differently, they're probably not very self-aware or aware of people they're talking to.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and so this also creates an opportunity for all of us to be more careful, filled with care about the people with whom we're communicating, because the -the off-the-cuff sarcasm and some of that stuff just doesn't work as well when people are overwhelmed.
1: When I think about awareness in general, you know, there are two pieces of it. The first parts we've already talked about, it's the self-awareness, which is defining your values. But the second part is the awareness of others. And, you know, that really starts begins and ends with compassion and empathy and truly thinking about like, who am I talking to? You know, not just how can they help? How can they be a vessel that helps me get done what I want to get done? but what are their goals, at, aspirations, desires, insecurities, fears. And as I'm sitting here, as I've started to think about when we have virtual town halls, right? Like we're having virtual town halls all the time now, something we never did before. And I'm thinking like, okay, 25% of these people are feeling they're working harder than they've ever worked. They're engaged. They're energized. They're, you may not be happy every day, but man, their sleeves are rolled up. They're, they're, they're fighting the fight with me, you know? 25% are in, intermittently doing that enough to feel connected. But 50% of our organization, Maureen, they're sitting home waiting. They're just waiting for us to get back to playing baseball. Because right now, the things that we do normally are just not happening. And so, you know, our job becomes so much, how do we think about those 50% of our organization to help them feel connected, help them feel empowered, help them feel some hope right and that walking that tightrope between transparency and hope we still need to be honest but we also need to be hopeful and optimistic and that tightrope of transparency and hope is man you talk what, what's huge. my biggest challenge that's my biggest challenge how do i walk how can i be my nature is to be flat out honest straightforward you know very but i've got to do that and still be hopeful and optimistic which i do feel i do know hey it's going to end by the way 100 percent, not maybe 100%. We're not in this for life. And so things will get better. Things will get normal. But in the meantime, we, are, we have had to lay people off. We did lose over $100 million last year. We are going to lose that again next year. We don't have fans here. We don't know when or how things will get better or get back. And so it's a, it's a balancing act. It's, it's a big challenge.
0: I think you hit something that for me is, has been a learned skill. I grew up in finance and economics. We're not taught to be optimistic. We're taught. And and I was a consultant. I'm paid to find problems. People don't pay me to be hopeful. They pay me to identify risks. So it's been a learned skill for me to both feel it, the self-awareness and convey it. I'm doing a trends presentation tomorrow and some of the trends aren't, aren't optimistic, as you've said, right? and yet, with every one of these things, there is a positive that can come out of it, but it's keeping the mind of opportunity, the mind of hope, back to learning, you've said, humility, with all of that, you know we're at a turning point in so many ways that we can solve some of the world's biggest problems in the next five years. And we're going through a time that if you've lost your job, it's incredibly painful.
1: It is. It is. What you said resonates with me. I mean, I tend to not need the flowery, optimistic, hopeful, you know, pumping up. Um, I tend to like, you know, want to just dive in and I feel strength by attacking the problem and coming up with it. But I think what this has forced me to do is think about all those other people and how they need to be tied in how they need to feel hope and, and, and really transform my leadership to that moment.
0: That's a brilliant insight and goes back to the self-awareness that each of us, no matter how good we are, and you're obviously incredibly successful and you've been recognized in a lot of ways for that success and the role modeling for everyone listening who aspires to be you, that you're still learning and improving even though you're top of your game.
1: Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing I would have for anyone that aspires to to have the role I have or, or be the, in the career or be a leader is, you know, it's not about me. That's what I would say. Like, it really truly is about I am just the sum of all the people that, you know, I work with and that I empower. And so while I have a role to play, creating frameworks, articulating values, helping us shape, you know, a vision in an organization, the work. Being done is not by me. And the intellectual power is not by me. And there's no, there's no one, there's no wizard of oz behind the screen. Our our you know conventional society tends to want to create the myth of the great leader. And in reality, I think a great leader is merely a reflection of a great organization.
0: That is a brilliant comment on that tone or on that comment: <laughs> a great leader is the reflection of a great organization. And I would say both ways. A great leader also creates a great organization so on that note i'm going to ask our listeners to think about who is the greatest leader you can think of as defined this way not defined some other way and what is that greatest organization or the flip it and what is the greatest organization you know and does that organization have a great leader We are with Maureen Metcalf and Mark Shapiro, and we are talking about leadership in Major League Baseball, but also just good leadership. Mark is talking about the kind of leadership that excels, whether you're in baseball or a prime minister or a community or a business. So Mark, we are recording this in November 2020, so people will be listening Mm -hmm for some period in the future. So we don't yet have, well, the announcement this morning was there's a good vaccine that should be available soon. So that is optimistic. The U.S. now has a president, we think. Whether you like them or not, there is certainty in knowing who it is. We've got a divided Congress. So again, whether you like it or not, there is a level of certainty that says our policies aren't going to flip completely upside down. And sure. we can all now make plans, whether you're in the U.S. or a trading partner with us or another government or business that is global. So for all of those, there is something to be optimistic about just in the certainty we can plan. What are you focused on right now?
1: Well, I mean, I think, listen, when I get that question, there two sides of my brain that kind of react to that. So there's a piece that's just very functional thinking about I'm focused on a return to baseball. I'm focused on, you know, preparing as if, as if baseball is going to happen next year, signing players, budgeting, you know, all the things that go into an organization, the planning and strategy and execution over the, for what's going to make us a championship team in 2021. And Then the second side of me says, well, I'm focused on the things I'm always focused on and that hasn't changed, which is the attributes and traits that I think, you know, identify and are core to being a sustainable championship organization, which are, you know, identifying talent, you know, bringing talent in, ensuring that talent is, you know, really empowered to contribute, making sure everybody is aligned behind a common set of values and that we are, you know, constantly focused on improving and getting better and challenging each other You know, to get better and look for competitive advantages and opportunities to beat people, by the way. So I'm not just a touchy feely, you know, I want (laughs) to win. I'm a highly competitive, highly competitive person. But, you know, so I think that the things that I think are so important to, you know, the sustainable championship success, you know, those attributes and traits, you know, making sure that we don't get too far away from those, making sure that survival mode doesn't cause us to deviate from you know, improvement and learning and elevating standards and expectations and obsessively finding competitive advantages or inefficiencies in our market, you know, we still need to focus on those things. and We need to still function at some level of normalcy, knowing that that is coming at some point um, and being prepared and in the meantime, working towards that. So um, I've got kind of two hats. One is kind of the crisis management hat, you know, making sure people take care of themselves, that their mental health. Is good that they're that they're staying connected that they feel part of things and the other part is driving that competitive tenacity and making sure that we're we are moving towards a world championship for for toronto and all of canada
0: which is really exciting for toronto and all of canada obviously not so exciting for your competitors
1: (laughs) hopefully not
0: (laughs) so what do you do that you're willing to share i realize some of this is competitive advantage So we've talked about the values of humility, creating a learning organization, compassion, and yet that matches up with hardcore competitive and winning. And I don't necessarily always think of I'm going to win at any cost because that's not what I hear. I hear sustainable winning. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about the difference between those two?
1: Yeah, I think win at every cost is outcome focus, and sustainable winning is process focus. Like it's that it's that simple for me. Like when you win it at all costs, you are and, and we started to get into this at the tail end of, of the last segment. This is a results driven world, you know. So if you start getting too touchy feely about values and, you know, guess what? Your market, your fans don't care. They really don't care. They don't really care. They just want you to win and they don't care how Mm -hmm. you do it necessarily. So the values, if you really believe, and I happen to tend tend to believe and have experience personally with the Cleveland Indians for a long period of time competing in in a landscape of Major League Baseball against teams that had two, three extra resources or in the AL East against the Yankees and Red Sox, teams that have double heart resources in Toronto, that the best way for us, to overcome that objective challenge, that objective reality is the culture, that culture, you know, I, people say, you know, culture, each strategy for breakfast, I say, culture is our strategy. Culture is our strategy. Like that's how we, you know, that's how we overcome, you know, what seems to be insurmountable objective challenges and odds. So for me, I don't view it to be just some touchy feely thing that like, you know, brings, people to me and me to people. I view that to be that's at the core and the lifeblood of what creates a sustainable organization that elevates our process, that creates systems that are cutting edge and better and keep getting better all the time, that engages and involves a thousand incremental efficiencies instead of one decision or one leader or one person or one framework that we're not just relying upon a model that says, this is gonna spit out the best answer. We're relying upon people creating dozens of models that say, we're gonna be great in all these little areas that help us overcome a team with two times the resources of us. So when I talk about it really being for competitive reasons, it just so happens that the values align with what I believe to be the competitive reality.
0: Well, and my assumption is that's why you're good. That's why you're winning. That's why you're getting not only championships, but also recognition as the top executive.
1: Some of that hopefully comes from developing people too. You know, like I think, I tend to think like the legacy, the lasting legacy is not just, Hardware, you know, rings and trophies, but you know, the people and the relationships and the leaders that you develop. And so it's a little bit karmic. It's it doesn't feel good to have people leave you. And a lot of times what I've found is people choose to stay with you regardless of having received incredible opportunities. And when someone does leave, I view that as a celebration, something to be proud of, something to say, you know, that's a great thing and that's gonna continue to make people want to work for the Cleveland Indians or want to work for the Toronto Blue Jays because we have this reputation of committing to our people authentically and genuinely to their development. That's part, I I kind of view it as a covenant, right? I expect really good work, by the way, really hard workers, really high quality of work, you know, a really strong commitment and and an engagement and involvement that transcends just, this is just not kind of what you do. It's who you are to some extent, right? Like we love what we do. Mm -hmm. And At the same time, what I promise is that we organizationally will commit to helping people achieve their goals and their aspirations and their desires, regardless of what they are. So, you know, you said we have to know what those things are, by the way, but we also need to commit to helping people get better and improve. And a lot of times empowerment just does that naturally through the cycle that we go through, but I think actively doing it, too.
0: You know, I've talked to executives in in multiple industries and similar comment about the culture that that's the the secret sauce. In my example, you can read my books. There aren't many secrets about what I do, but doing it with me is different than doing it with someone who read a book. I I don't
1: think there are any secrets. You know, I I never, I, I don't get caught up in that at all. I mean, the discipline of actually executing you know is the secret right like yeah. anyone can have good ideas or thoughts like but do you have the discipline of actually when and that gets back to what we just talked about when a shortcut presents itself that causes you to compromise your values or you know a short-term result can be achieved in a way that kind of deviates from your strategy and plan and most importantly your values do you take the shortcut or do you continue to you know to stay the course what's at the core of your mm-hmm. identity and your values And so, yeah, the discipline of actually, I don't think there are any big secrets, you know, but I think that the ability to not let other people's opinions, you know, not let that criticism, not let fear and insecurity derail you from consistently focus on getting better and to sit in the same set of decisions and values, that's what can undermine.
0: I appreciate, and I think you said earlier the soft skills, and it's- not being an either or but you've got to be just dead on on your game because when you hit the field you have to win and those values help create the culture that augment good skills
1: yeah and i and one thing about sport and maybe this is why it does present a powerful model for business is that you know it's funny sports our businesses are, are at, at, a, at a individual team level so much smaller than probably most of the organizations you deal with, right? Like we're three, $400 million. We're a big, we're a mid-sized business. We're not a billion dollar, you know, we're a billion dollar industry, but we're not a billion dollar business like fortune 500 companies yet. Almost none of those fortune 500 companies walk into the coffee shop in the morning, their kids school, (laughs) you know, turn on the radio and hear someone criticizing the work they're doing, pop on the computer and see 30 blogs and five newspapers that, that are publishing articles, criticizing the work you're doing. So I'll tell you what, if you're not certain of who you are as a human being and a person, if you're not clear as to who you are as an organization, then that criticism that can really start to create fear, worry, and doubt, and that fear, worry, and doubt can start to change the behavior and that behavior change can start to undermine the core of who you are and who we are as an organization. So that clarity, that short-term criticism, short-term results are not going to define me or us has to be so important and so rock solid. So I do think like if we can do that in sports, a business that may have to get evaluated by a stock every day, that is kind of is but doesn't have to deal with the same level of scrutiny publicly and feedback publicly that strikes it who you are as a human being. It's a great test. And it's a great it is a if you want to be sure of who you are as a person, then you, you better be able to open up Twitter or Instagram and know that Twitter is going to there's going to be 40 people just every minute of the day crushing you because of a decision you made. Think about that. That's not easy. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not you. Well, but I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to do that. And I never take it too, never take that. I take that seriously, because it's how much people care. But I never take it too seriously as a reflection of who I am. It's what I do. It's not who I am, you know?
0: Well, and my sense is, again, for you, and I, I don't know the industry overall. And I assume there's a range of competent and incompetent from this lens. But that your ability to keep in perspective has to do with your emotional maturity, that you're able not just to compartmentalize it, but process it. And it just doesn't leave a residue at the end of your day. It's part of the landscape that is, I think we all have it in different ways, but to your point, someone attacking you, you as a human being in some cases, because they didn't like a decision you made. Right. Many of us don't get that quite as overtly.
1: I think like something you mentioned, you've mentioned the word and I, we both mentioned independently awareness is such an important thing. Cause listen, like, I'm not going to tell you, it doesn't bother me. Like I'm human, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you see someone like, I want to like, I always love my son. I have an 18 year old son. He wants to debate every person because he knows the reasons and he wants to prove to them that they're wrong. And there a reason for every. And oftentimes in my job, we can't we can't say the reason because it had to do with an injury or, you know, some behavior that we can't, we can't damage a person by openly saying, well, we traded this guy because he was a terrible teammate, treated people terribly around the organization and was, you know, just created dysfunctional locker room. We can't, we never (laughs) say that. Right. So we have to just say, you know, the guy wasn't a good fit or, you know, we felt it was the right time to make a change. or We were very like, anecdotal and kind of loose in our communication of those things and it really when you're when you're dealing with a criticism and you know you know the reasons you made a decision it causes you to kind of say yes it bothers me yes it creates some immediate reaction and then pull back you know is this really a reflection of who i am or what's important am i still the same father brother son friend leader like all those roles that are so important to me in life you know am i still those things to those people and is that opinion really relevant to me in those roles that are so important in defining me in the way i want to be defined and so the power comes in not letting those superficial flash evaluations that by the way change minute to minute you're not ever as smart as they say you are when you're succeeding and you're not and and you can't let that affect you either you can't let the praise ever get to you and that's the only chance you have to not let that criticism impact you
0: deeply as well. Well, and thank you for sharing more in depth about that, because I think a lot of people, we all face criticism at some point. And like you, I can take it incredibly personally because I want to be effective. I'd also like to be liked, but that is less important. I want to do a good job for the people who care about the work I'm doing and Absolutely. whose livelihoods are impacted by me. And so if you told me I did a terrible job, it would cause me to pay attention back to your learning piece. I want to learn and get smarter. And I also realize if someone's criticizing me who has no idea what I do, then they're also probably not going to. Give me the insight I'm looking for.
1: Yeah, I t- and I, I think in the end, I tend to be more critical, more self-critical of myself and the organization than anyone externally could be. Someone externally could criticize an individual decision, transaction, moment in time, whereas I'm tending to think, how do we get better? Where's the opportunity? Who's mm-hmm. beating us? You know, what, are, where, where, what are what's out in the horizon that we're not doing at the moment. And so and I can't turn that part of me off. I Maureen, I wish I could. You know, I wish I could turn that off. That's the piece of me so I can let go now at this point 30 years in. I can finally let go the short term it'll impact me for a moment okay. Let it go. Being liked is not as important to me at 53 mm-hmm. years old as it was to me at, at 30 probably or 35. That's no longer how I'm achieving any fulfillment. But being respected, having people feel confident in my leadership, you know, those things are so important to me.
0: Well, and again, thank you for hitting the more personal elements, because so often people think about leadership as the series of processes or steps, and they don't think about themselves as the person doing the leading. You are the human being delivering that result. Absolutely. if you're unaware of who you are and what's going on, your success is gonna be low.
1: I wonder if this resonates with you, like dealing with so many leaders. I always, I tell young people when, I'm, when they're in my office and we're talking about leadership, like, listen, I don't walk into the building and put on a cape and become a leader. The leader I am is the father I am, is the brother I am, is the son I am, is the friend I am. It's inextricable. The person I am is the leader I am. And if I'm trying to be a leader, or act like a leader, or exhibit certain leadership behaviors, then I'm inauthentic. It's not sustainable. It may last as long as someone gives me some sort of superficial authority and title. But if I really want to lead, strip away the title, strip away the position, and do I engender respect? Do I engender people that want to be with me and and not follow me, but want to be with me and a part of something that I'm a part of, and join me on kind of this competitive, journey to, to get better and, and to accomplish things that no one else has accomplished because that's what we we all aspire to do and so I think that you know that that authenticity that you know, starts with being sure of who you are and working on that and then it it's it sticks with challenging yourself okay I'm going to stay true to that I don't need to exert my leadership I don't need to exert my authority I don't need to exert my title or my office or any of my experience and if I'm invoking those things then i tell you what, I've failed because it means I can't just lead by engendering respect and care and compassion and vulnerability and all those other things that will make people genuinely want to be a part of something I'm a part of.
0: It absolutely resonates. And I'll add another piece to that because there are people who want, who perceive effective leadership as autocratic or dictatorial, or you're in charge and you need to tell me what to do. So I think all of the things you said resonate as long as you have I'll use the word followers or teammates, and I know those are charged words, but you've got people in your organization who also want to step up, be good thinkers, don't need to be told what to do. They already come in with good ideas, have passion for the sport. They have passion for the organization. They're fortunate to do this work and they feel that.
1: Yeah. I always feel like I'm never going to be done, never going to be done leading. But if I can walk any place in our building or any place in our organization, any field, any level of the stadium, and no matter who I see, they feel like their work is important. They feel like their job, regardless of custodian, engineer, intern, or senior executive, they feel like their work is important to our championship success and our future, then I'm, I'm doing a good job. If any of those people don't feel personally tied to our success, I have a lot of work to do. I'm not done. I got I to gotta get better because that's my job. Make sure everybody recognizes it's not about me. It's about them and their contributions to helping us be great.
0: Mark, I'm going to end on that note because that was a brilliant summation of who you are and what you value. And for our listeners, this is Mark Shapiro. He is the president and CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays, and a brilliant thinker as a leader. So I'm always looking for people to interview who embody what I think are incredibly effective leadership mindsets, values, behaviors, but it starts with the mindset. Who am I inside? And then it shows up outside. And Mark, you're just one of the top people that I've talked to in a period of time. So thank you very much for modeling these things that we talk about.
1: Well, thank you. That's humbling. And especially coming from you who's dealing with elite leaders all the time and um, appreciate the opportunity is always an exchange for me. So I've learned, I've learned in this hour as well and, and encourage anybody listening that, you know, wants to engage further and help me learn and us get better with the Blue Jays and baseball, please reach out as well.
0: And how would someone find you if they reached yeah, out? Yeah, just
1: my emails. It's one of those ones that's, that's a trick because it's not a trick. It's just mark.shapiro at bluejays.com. M-A-R-K
0: dot S-H-A-P-I-R-O at bluejays.com. Just reach it. Feel free to drop me an email. Thank you, Mark. We're delighted to share the wisdom from the International Leadership Association 2020 Global Leadership Conference, Leading at the Edge. We encourage you to join for additional conversations. Please bookmark this podcast, subscribe, like it, share it with your friends and colleagues. Most importantly, thank you for focusing on elevating your own leadership and making an impact in the world today.